Welcome to That's Orgasmic, a podcast discussing the orgasmic and not-so-orgasmic moments of all things sex, relationships, and mental health. I am your host, Emily Duncan, and I'm a sexologist who provides online sex coaching sessions to help you cultivate sexual wellness. Today, I'm joined with Kate Duncan, who is an occupational therapist. Kate's Kate works with children and adults on the autism spectrum. Kate studies sexology and has a keen interest in the intersectionality of disability and sex. So I studied with Kate and had the pleasure of actually getting to know you in person, unlike (laughs) I do with a lot of my guests. A lot of them I have never met before. So (laughs) I am super excited to be able to chat with you again and have you on That's Orgasmic to talk about ASD and sex. So welcome to That's Orgasmic. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Are you able to first just tell us a little bit about like the work that you do? Yeah, sure. So first of all, uh, Kate Duncan, Emily Duncan, we're actually not related. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when I was saying that, that, I was like, oh my God, the same name. (laughs) Yeah, so um, I studied my bachelor's and undergrad in occupational therapy and I've been working with um, kids and adults on the spectrum for two years now. and going into my third year. And so what I work on with them is a range of different areas, including social um, skills and communication skills, activities of daily living, which just includes all the little tasks and activities that make up our day. If we think of like the, the word occupational therapy, occupation means the little tasks that make up our day and then therapy means to help do better. So Basically, I just look at the little barriers and things that people want to work on in their day and and I help them to achieve their goals and work towards them. Yeah, amazing. And it's such important work that you do. And I feel like occupational therapy is one of those things that like no, not many people actually know what an occupational therapist does. Like I remember Mm -hmm. my first like three years of uni, there were so many occupational therapists and I'm like, (laughs) I actually have no idea what you guys do. It's really hard because it's so dependent on the context in which we work. You'll have ones in hospitals that kind of work on equipment prescription and then you've got OTs like me, which has uh, kind of a really broad and varied caseload and goal base, yeah. Mm. So are we able to talk a bit about like, obviously we're here to talk about ASD and sex um, and I don't think Mm -hmm. I had already said what that stands for. Did I say that already or you at all? Autism spectrum disorder? Yeah. yeah, so it stands for Autism Spectrum Disorder, which I think everyone's pretty familiar with nowadays. It's it's pretty common and diagnosis is on the rise um, and we're definitely seeing an increased number of people accessing services um, and that's like the primary uh, disability that I work with, that population. Yeah, awesome. So how does ASD then impact sex? Right, so I guess there's some key characteristics about ASD that we need to kind of talk about and break down. I did want to preface this, um, I guess, podcast episode with the fact that I'm not on the autism spectrum and I'm coming from a clinical perspective and also as someone who's had experience working with others who have shared their own experiences. So I can't speak to the lived experience of ASD and sex inter um, like crossing over and that intersectionality, but I can speak from a clinical perspective because I know stuff about autism and I work with my clients on autism and I also kind of know stuff about about sex. So um, 
yeah, I did just want to preface that. And I'll probably be using um, identity first language, which means I'll say autistic person or um, person with autism, I can swap them interchangeably. So just wanted to warn if anyone's listening to this and might find that as a bit of a trigger, I'll probably just swap between the two. So how they kind of intersect is lots of people who are on the spectrum will have sensory processing disorder or difficulties, or sometimes just known as differences. That means that the way that they process sensory input and sensory information is maybe different to the way that a typical person might. So let's think about in the sex context, there is lots of sensory stuff going on. And that's part of why sometimes it's so fun. It's because we're getting all these beautiful sensations, these orgasmic sensations. <laughs> um, and it's really fun until maybe you have a hypersensitivity to say physical touch. So let's think about all of the physical things that are involved in sex can include not only skin to skin contact, kisses, the actual touching of like genitalia and our private parts, as we sometimes call it with our clients. Um, but then there's bed sheets and clothing and itchy lingerie, uh, lube and uh, body fluids and wetness that are all different types of sensory sensations that can lead to sensory overload or sensory overwhelm for some of our clients who fall on the sensitive side. And then on the other side is under-responsive. So someone who's under-responsive to sensory input, it's kind of like they have a big cup. So to fill that cup, they need lots of information. And our sensitive people need to have a tiny cup. So a little bit of information can feel like a lot. Like that's where you get the overwhelm. For our clients who are kind of under-responsive, it means that sometimes touch for them cannot really feel like much. And they need a lot of input to achieve the same sensations or feedback as others. So if you're thinking about from a sex perspective and trying to orgasm and get clitoral stimulation, that might look like extra friction and additional pressures for someone who's under-responsive. And for someone who's over-responsive, they might need really delicate touch. It might even be too sensitive to go near that area. Um, so they might need to really start slow and just work on one body part at a time, things like that. Um, the other way that it intersects is um, with consent. It's a really big thing within the disability population is working on not only teaching consent but and how what that means and looks like, but also getting it from others. So um, something with ASD is social communication can be difficult or there might be differences. So the way that nonverbal cues and verbal cues are interpreted might be slightly different. What we know from consent is those those are really important features. So understanding what, you know, a moan here and a moan there, yes, no, down there, all those those explicit words, that's great, but there's a lot of nonverbal clues that we use as well, which is looks, smiles, moans, um, you know, guiding someone's hand somewhere when you're actually in the act of sex. That can be really confusing and hard to interpret for our individuals on the spectrum. And not only is it really important for them to know how to give consent and what that looks like, but also to um, not give it and understand what another person's consent looks like so that someone else, whoever they're engaging with, feels safe and is safe as well. That was a really, like, great detailed explanation of how it can impact it and I think it's so diverse and I guess that's also why like obviously it's the autism like it's a spectrum mm -hmm. and 
I can only just imagine then, I guess, the difficulty not only for those um, living with ASD, like trying to navigate this and understand how their body's responding to sex because, like, it's already hard enough trying to navigate, Mm. you know, sexual feelings and, you know, what feels good, what doesn't feel good, what's triggering, what's not, and then to then you know, do that when you might be easily overstimulated or understimulated, Mm. I imagine would be extremely difficult. And then also when it comes to like, as you said, like communication and consent, like there's just so much to that. Mm -hmm. And I can just, I can only imagine how difficult it would be. Yeah. It feels like a bit like a, like a rabbit hole, you know, especially with sensory sensitivity, we only touched on physical and that doesn't include things like taste, which extends to you know when you're kissing and there's someone mm-hmm. else's saliva and mouth involved then you can think about auditory which is some of our clients or I say clients people on the spectrum they can hear fans going that we filter out but maybe they can't filter that fan out or it might be a clicking noise of something going on or it might just be the rustling of the sheets they can all start filling up their cup and lead to that overwhelm um There's another really cool part of um, our sensory processing system called our interoception. Mm -hmm. So interoception is our body's internal recognition and receptors of its feelings. So that's things like hunger, thirst, um, our bowel and bladder movements. It tells our our brain that we need to go to the toilet. But it also extends to attraction, you know, those sort of butterfly tummy gut feelings, uh, the fanny flutters, <laughs> um, things like that can also be impacted. So someone's internal body sensations when they're thinking about attraction and who they like want to have sex with or who they're just generally like romantically attracted to can be, feel like the wires are getting crossed a little. Um, mm. So, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I feel like it's so much that so many people wouldn't think about and it's, it's so lot. important for us <laughs> to think about because obviously you may have sexual relationships with somebody on the spectrum one day or mm. like work with people or whatever like I think it's just so important that we are aware of this so that we're yeah. better equipped to either have conversations about it support people or you know just it's just good knowledge to have I think absolutely I think um we're going up from about 1% to a 2% of the population diagnosis. Like it's kind of, um, it's a growing area and a growing diagnosis as our understanding of how it presents in various populations like girls and boys increases. So the chances of you encountering individuals with autism, dating individuals with autism, having them in your family and around you I mean, it's more likely than not that that's going to occur and to have that extra level of understanding is generally just really, really helpful and going to make everyone feel included and have a better time. (laughs) Mm, Absolutely. One thing I did want to touch on is Mm. for somebody who is experiencing overstimulation during sex, do you have any like advice or anything on how they might be able to navigate that overstimulation? Yeah, I think one thing that I think is across, you know, neurotypical and neurodivergent people is communication. So 
doesn't matter what kind of partner or partners you're engaging with, having those conversations outside of the bedroom first about what you know are your triggers, your things that you're sensitive to and things that you're under-responsive to is like one of the first points of call. So getting to know yourself and then helping someone else to understand you before you're in that environment. I think we all kind of know what it's like to be in a sexual situation where it's like, oh, it feels too late to say something or, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to ruin the moment or kill the mood by by bringing something up that really could have been a conversation beforehand. And, and that's not to say that it can't be an ongoing conversation during sex, but sometimes you kind of need to kind of map it out and have that pre-conversation so that when you do say something in in sex or in the moment, it doesn't feel out of context and someone's like, oh, cool, we've had that conversation. Like um, some of my clients have developed code words so that it doesn't kind of kill the mood or, and they will, it will just kind of mean I need a break or I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed or this is good, I'm happy to keep going, just so that they break that wall down of making it explicit. They just want to make it a code word so it's a little bit less um, of a, uh, I'll put it in quotation marks, mood killer, as my mm-hmm. one of my individuals has said. For things like physical touch, going really slowly can be one of the best strategies. So starting on one body part, one really slowly, having regular breaks, making sure that you're checking in and saying, how is this feeling for you? Is it too much? Is it too little? That's a really, really valuable thing that you can do with a partner. I think it's, I mean, regardless of if you are on the spectrum or not with sensory sensitivities, that can be a fun, a fun sexual experience to just go like body part by body part. Um, so that's one way to do it. I think... One really great way to do it as well is we know that often um, people on the spectrum find new situations, unfamiliar circumstances difficult to navigate because routine and sameness is really comfortable. So for someone who's going to a sexual scenario that might be new or different or with a new partner, this can be really challenging. There's already a lot of things to think about. There's a lot of unknowns in that situation because mm-hmm. You know, sexual routines do develop in relationships and that's great, but when it's particularly new partners and we're navigating that space, there's a lot of unknowns and people try and keep it spicy, which can be great to keep it, you know, changing and mixing up. But for someone on the spectrum, that might be really hard because they're trying to go, oh, okay, well, last time this happened next, but now it's changed and I don't know what happens after that. So trying to keep a level of sameness, whether that be keeping the same environment, making sure that you know, we don't have something as simple as like a sex playlist. Keep it on the same, like don't have it on shuffle, have it on like the same one so that that song change isn't already suddenly distracting and then you get that hyper fixation on, oh, well, that's different and, and now all of a sudden this is happening and, and that's those little, little things that can fill up that cup and make it overwhelming. Sameness and and creating almost like, it's what we would call like a graded approach. So there's a level of knowns and things that we know will be the same. And then really little bit by little bit, we can introduce new things in, and introduce elements that are out of the routine, but all at once can be really overwhelming. Yeah, no, I can only mm-hmm. imagine. And they were all, I mean, great pieces of, I guess, advice and I love the code words. I feel like that could really be applied to everybody's mm-hmm. like sexual experiences because so many people 
are like scared of ruining the mood and I think it opens up the opportunity then to have more conversations outside of the bedroom which I think are really important so that when everybody enters enters that bedroom (laughs) we you know know what's going on it's we obviously then understand probably boundaries a bit more and it probably just feel a little bit more safe because you've had that like conversation beforehand Mm -hmm. um and know how to navigate that but yeah they were yeah amazing amazing suggestions what I often say to um like parents of children that I'm working with and, and what we know from research is that best practice with autism is best practice for all kids and that really often extends to adults too so lots of the suggestions are really like transferable and applicable to the entire population. It just takes a little bit more of care and consideration. And to be honest, if you had like an autistic partner and you engaged in these strategies and then, you know, say you broke up and brought them to a a partner who was neurotypical, I'd say that your sexual experience with that neurotypical partner would be amplified and much better. And you would be a better sexual partner for increasing your ability to communicate, increasing your awareness of someone's sensory needs um, and then increasing your awareness of someone's desire for spontaneity versus sameness. Because, I mean, most most humans are, we're creatures of habit mm. and we like our little routines and that's not just people with autism. It's, you know, it's amplified possibly for them. But um, everyone likes likes to know where they stand and be on the same page as everyone. So... Really, I mean, everyone can take away from this these sort of pieces of advice. Oh, absolutely. And that's one thing I was thinking with everything you were saying, I was like, this is something that everybody should do or everybody should mm. have in their little sexual tool book, you know, that they, can, <laughs> they can pull out of a news when they need to. And I think, yeah, they were definitely things that were just so universal to everybody Another thing that I did want to discuss, um, which I think is really important, is ableism. And Mm. it's just such a big issue in society still. And unfortunately, unless you're somebody working with people with disabilities or know people living with disabilities and so on, people are just so oblivious to it. And so therefore, I think it's really important to, to bring it to this discussion And I guess I just wanted to touch on, like, how does ableism affect those with ASD and their sexuality in particular? Yeah, so what we know from emerging studies and research, and, you know, there's yet to be some, like, really big and solid studies, but basically (laughs) basically preliminary findings are showing us that people on the spectrum experience a more varied Um, experience of sexuality and gender identity so we're seeing you know in a population where we might see neurotypical people identifying kind of maybe in the 20 percent of them identify as non-heterosexual we're seeing estimates up to 60 to 70 percent in neurodivergent people so we're seeing lots of presentations of people who are in the queer community and wanting to be and exploring their gender identity outside of that of their sex assigned at birth So where we get this intersection of ableism and disabilities, one, people in the disability community are already part of a minority group. Mm. And then add on to that, the LGBTQIA plus community are also a minority group. So there is a phenomenon called minority stress. 
and people who are on the spectrum and also queer will experience a double minority stress. So that means that they are more likely to have mental health problems and uh, psychological issues related to this, and that puts them at a disadvantage. They're more likely to have a poorer quality of life. So there's that element of it. The other element is that what we see within people exploring their sexual orientation and their gender identity is in the disability community, people question the capability and capacity of individuals with disability to understand and know that. So we get a lot of ableism coming through where they're not believed or they're a, a person with a disability might be kind of assumed that, oh, they've just picked that up from somewhere and they don't really know what it means. Uh, we don't trust them and we don't kind of um, assume that they have capacity to know they're, who they're attracted to and who they're not. So we see a lot of ableism coming in in that, uh, yeah, ability to assume or in assuming the capacity of an individual to know themselves better than we, we think we know them mm. as carers or as professionals. So we see a lot, a lot of sort of ableistic um, uh, things happening there. Yeah, definitely. And I can imagine that would also show up a lot in like the healthcare system and like going to say, maybe mm-hmm. go get um, an SCI test or mm-hmm. like, you know, going to, I don't know, just even talk about sexual difficulties or the fact that for so many years, um, like, people living with disabilities just didn't get sex education like it was even worse than yeah you know those who are able like it's just it's so like it's just so unfair that mm. they have to experience that and, and just be a couple... seen as not sexual beings yeah exactly I was going to comment the next kind of element of it is that there's there's two kind of stereotypes where we we commonly see referred to with um just people with disability in general and it's that they're either hypersexual and constantly engaging in like sexual behaviors that are seen as inappropriate even though they may be appropriate they just haven't been told how to engage in them in an expected way and then we see the opposite which is that a person with a disability is not a sexual being and therefore we don't we don't see them that way so we don't teach them that we don't offer them STI checks or help them to explore what it's like to have a relationship because we see them as asexual. So we've got kind of two ends of the spectrum and and we see both stereotypes quite prominently within at least the Western society. And that's another um, area in which ableism really affects people on the spectrum and and, and people with disabilities in general is, is people don't really think of them as sexual beings or the opposite, they see them as hypersexual and as a problem when maybe our highest support needs individuals are engaging in behaviours and we just try to repress it instead of saying, oh, wait a second, that person's masturbating just like I do. They just haven't been told how to do it in a way that's expected and, and meet that need in a safe and functional way. So, yeah, we often see it coming through and it's really sad, but education, you're right, is one of the best ways that we can target this. Um, and I think it's we're getting better. We're not there yet, but it's um, 
I have hope. <laughs> yeah, no, I have hope too. And I think that like for the general just like wider community, there's such a lack of sex education and everything anyway. Mm. And then when you take that to a minority group, like it's always just even further behind and it's so frustrating. But I'm glad I've been seeing so many more resources coming mm. out around this, especially like I don't know if it was just Perth, but Perth seems to have some really great resources and I don't know if it's just because like being in Perth with other sexologists and studying there like you obviously Mm. you know see what's there but I feel like compared to other places like when I think of Geelong like I've tried to look at what's around and it just really isn't enough enough not enough for like the amount of people who do live with disabilities yeah there's most government sort of health Um, departments will have some sort of website they've set up and there are some really awesome ones like I think uh, South Australia have some really good sexuality and disability resources there's one called Planet Puberty and and I forget which states these are all made in but usually they're under some sort of government funded body Um, but I think in WA we're seeing a few extra ones like we've got SECA um, S-E-C-C-E Um, up and coming so they're a sexuality and education counselling and consultative service and I think that they are separate to government which is just really nice to see some private and non-for-profit organisations popping up because it really is an area that I mean there's a gap in the market like it's a great opportunity but it's a it's a gap in the service that we are delivering to um, our clients on the spectrum and it's a gap in their quality of life Mm -hmm. that we can really tap into and working work on because every just like human rights there are sexual rights too and every person deserves access to um, meet their sexual needs and their sexual rights and whatever way that looks like it looks different for different people but it's still a right that you have just for being a human and existing um, at least in the western world yeah yeah no absolutely I agree mm-hmm. and I think that's like such a true point like although you're saying like yeah there's this gap in the market but this is a gap in their lives like they're not Mm. getting this support like they don't even have you know in some places access they don't even have a place to go to get this and like I just couldn't you know imagine being in that situation where you're wanting support for this needing support and you just can't get that like that would just be it'd just be horrible and it'd be so hard for some people because they wouldn't even know that this is something that they're probably needing and Mm -hmm. unless there's a service there like like what do you do exactly and and even for families as well like if you have a child who's quite high support needs and you're seeing lots of sexual behaviors coming through it can be a really scary world to navigate because you know you might be worried one about your child or family member being taken advantage of but two what if they accidentally do something that's inappropriate to someone else and gets them in trouble and ends up in trouble with the law so it's it's a really hard space for not only the individuals to work within but their family and like immediate support circles it it's really hard so it's definitely an area we can we can do better in and we're trying to um yeah (laughs) yeah I guess um going off what you just said then about like that higher risk of abuse are we like able to touch on that a bit so because like Mm -hmm. obviously unfortunately it's I feel like it's pretty well known that listeners might not know but like those living with a disability are at a higher risk of abuse so Mm -hmm. are you able just to touch on this a bit 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, like it's it's significantly higher the rates and incidences of sexual abuse against people with disabilities. Um, they're seen as a though they are a vulnerable population often, and they're seen as easier targets with lower consequences um, for you know actions that are taken against them, and and that's due to a variety of reasons. It might be um, ability for that individual to communicate what's happened to them. It might be that they're left under the guardianship of care of lots of people that, you know, support workers, carers, there's lots of people in and out. So, you know, it's pretty easy to kind of miss and fly under the radar, not like like a kid that kind of you spend all day at school and then comes home and spends time with mum and dad. These are adults that are in a group homes and community housing where people come and go quite frequently and it's really normal. And um, it's it's a real concern that we really need to start working on and targeting. And I think we're doing, we're making ramifications within the sexual education and education system to do better. Um, but there's definitely lots of things we could support these individuals on, you know, mm. in a more effective and holistic way. Yeah, no, definitely. I just, it takes me back to like, um, like when we were studying, um, what was the first unit called? I can't even remember. One of the sexology units, I think you were in the same class. Yeah. And I just remember just like, like touching on something so basic, but unless you're like engaging with like people living with disabilities or, you know, educating yourself on it, you wouldn't even think about. But just being po- mm-hmm. taught like the proper terminology of genitals and things like that because obviously – then if you don't know those words, how are you meant to go and tell somebody, hey, something's not right or somebody's touched me here and I I know that that's, you know, um, yeah. not appropriate and being able to use the right terminology. Like there's just all those little things then can create such, I mean, they're not even little things, but can obviously just mm. create, you know. Well, they seem little to us because we... They seem little to us because, like, we've been taught and told them and we know what they are and they seem they seem so simple and obvious, but that's kind of like where this, uh, the ableism that we referred to yeah, kind of filters absolutely. down is that we see, you know, educators saying, oh, you know, they're not they're not interested in that stuff and therefore they're taken out of sex ed classes. The, the curriculums aren't adapted to suit their needs and, and they're not getting the sex ed that others are because the because of those, I guess, views and stereotypes and biases that, you know, and systemic issues as well that kind of mean often our clients and individuals with disabilities are excluded from the educational experiences that they need more so arguably than someone who is able-bodied and non-disabled. Mm, yeah, and it's just like it's so wrong and it shouldn't be happening anymore and I, I yeah. know it, it still definitely is in certain areas and communities um, mm. but obviously that's why we have people like you who are out there trying, <laughs> to, trying to change this. <laughs> Do you have any other like tips for navigating sexual relationships with ASD? Because obviously we kind of touched on a little bit with the overstimulation. Yeah, I think we touched on the overstimulation for sure. I think there's a lot of really cool um, websites and resources that you can reach out to. I know in WA we've got something called Q Life. I mean, it's not ASD specific necessarily, but it is really open and inclusive and friendly. And I think sometimes where um, in society we have 
social rules and most of them are hidden. There's, there's nowhere written on the wall, don't pick your nose. It doesn't say, um, say hello and goodbye in every conversation. All of these little rules that we pick up and become habits are often rules that need explicit coaching for our individuals with autism because it kind of gets missed um, along the way because we know that social and emotional communication can be an area of difference and difficulty. So if you think about, you know, relationships, how many hidden and hidden rules are there within that? How many... Literally, so many. Um, literally, so I'm just thinking of one example, just one tiny example, how about we interact with dating and Instagram, whether it's a like on a story or a react, all of those nuanced things that we just pick up and know, like we, no one's ever told me that a boy liking or a girl liking my story means that they like me, but I know. Mm-hmm. We know that thing. Mm-hmm. So... I guess what I'm trying to say is that with individuals on the spectrum, we either need to help upskill them and explicitly teach them some of these hidden social rules and, and don't assume that they know what you're talking about or that they know what something means. Or if you're the person that's trying to make a move, be explicit and say, I'm really interested in you and I'd like to go on a date. Instead of just sending a like that's probably going to be like, oh, that's weird. Okay, moving on. Because <laughs> it might be missed. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice. I think, mm. and then also, I guess, it comes back to communication, like being mm. um, upfront and actually mm-hmm. saying what you want, no games, because there's so many fucking yeah. games when it comes to dating. <laughs> and oh I my think goodness. <laughs> it probably, you know, really opens up the opportunity for really like honest um, mm. and probably potentially more genuine relationships because you have to really be like, okay, I like you this is what I want, you know, like being Absolutely. really um, just open and having really good yeah. communication. Yeah, I think that ambiguity for, for I mean, I know that I find the ambiguity of relationships and dating hard, let alone for an individual who might really enjoy and find comfort in concrete, explicit boundaries and names and labels. Um, yeah, I think the other... The only other kind of, not necessarily on relationships, but maybe on just generally like disability and and sex um, and sexual education, like some general tips is maybe more so for parents and and family members and people working with this population is the biggest tools that we have and the um, the biggest way that we can support these individuals to reduce their risk of abuse is to increase their sexual literacy. So that's as you said, like teaching them the explicit names of um, body parts, teaching them how to name and describe what has happened to them and who has happened to them, Um, teaching them how to say no and have body autonomy and understand that if someone touches me and I say no, that that's not a good thing, that's a bad thing. Um, Often we'll have people refer to, you know, down there and your flower or your cookie. Mm. And for an individual who takes things really literally, one, that's really confusing because um, what if you really like cookies and then someone refers to your cookie? <laughs> um, two, when it comes to telling someone what's happened if you've been sexually abused or assaulted, a an individual might kind of try and communicate that but they don't have the sexual literacy to express what's happened. Um and perpetrators who perceive someone to have good sexual literacy are far less likely to perpetrate mm. because the perceived consequences are much lower. Um, 
if you extend to the next step after someone has disclosed what has happened to them, thinking about how things hold up legally and in court, if you've got an individual who is already from the outside in, you know, stereotypically people will often assume they have limited capacity, you've got someone saying, oh, they touched me down there, that's not going to hold up in court and you're very, very unlikely to get any sort of legal retribution or consequences. So not only is it important to avoid it happening at all, but after something does happen, following up with that legally, um, it's really important that our kids and adults and just individuals in general have the education and literacy to say what's happened to me um, and that it wasn't okay or even just deny consent in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that just shows like the ramifications that happen when there's a lack of education, Mm -hmm. like not only from putting them in a more vulnerable position, but then to what happens afterwards. And it is just so fucked also. Like, I mean, our court systems are already terrible Mm -hmm. when it comes to this stuff. But then to throw in, you know, living with a disability or living on the spectrum, it just makes it so much harder again when they, you know, you want to be as supported as you can through that process and like it's just so like it's just so shit honestly like it's yeah to describe it unfortunately like in those sorts of situations anything that you have that can be used against you or used to devalue or deplatform your validity will be used and so that's mm. likely going to happen unfortunately but I think that's where podcasts like these and and sex positive environments where we talk about sex and we don't have shame and secrets is good for everyone, but particularly our individuals with disability. Because if we just don't talk about it, one, they don't know, but two, we also do create this air of shame and secrets that is likely to also cause that individual to withhold stuff or feel like they've done something wrong. They might interpret something that's happened to them as, as we know, lots of kids or individuals who have been abused or sexually assaulted often blame themselves and feel like it's their fault. And I think that comes from or part of where that stems from is that we um, create shame and this sort of, oh, we can't talk about that, it's taboo. And if something happens, you know, it's, it's probably your fault for letting them on. It's like, no, let's be open, let's talk. Let's talk, like, young and let's talk often and let's mm-hmm. talk explicitly so that this is, it's not, you know, the birds and the bees talk. It's not one conversation. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing conversation that ideally should start the moment your child starts to be able to verbalise that they want a hug or a kiss or a high five or a cuddle right up until, I mean, at least until they're 18, but it might go on forever. Um, mm-hmm. It shouldn't be a conversation that ever stops, I don't think. No, absolutely. And I think, I mean, even... Like, I know I'm talking about sex all the time. Obviously, sexologists are like <laughs> a little bit different. But, like, these conversations, I think, are lifelong. Like, mm. sex is constantly evolving. How we like to have sex constantly evolves. The terminology, even just looking at, like, um, gender, for instance, how that has evolved from probably 20 years ago to now. Like, everything around sex, mm-hmm. sexuality is constantly evolving so it's a constant conversation and they have to be open and honest and using the correct terminology to be as effective as they can be so I think that's Mm -hmm. yeah so important absolutely yeah 100% agree for those who aren't living with autism and 
want to better support those who do live on the spectrum with their sexuality, do you have any advice outside of the things I've already touched on? Uh, Yeah, I mean, often if you're supporting a person who's on the spectrum, they will likely have a therapist of some sort, a support worker. They're often going to be in touch with some sort of service. Um, That service can extend to you and a consultative framework, particularly if you're a guardian. So get in touch with those key supports, ask them what resources they have, ask them how they can help that individual. But then on the other hand, ask that individual how you can help them. That person has a voice and that person um, has their own sort of thoughts and beliefs and it's important that they are part of that conversation at all times. So really just saying, what can we do to help you? What can we do to support you? And I guess that that's obviously goes without saying we're talking about individuals who can communicate functionally um, if we look at individuals with maybe higher support needs who have uh, intellectual disabilities and things alongside it that that might look different um, that might look like a much more consultative framework with services um, and I think do a little bit of research into what sort of websites and resources there are already out there there's some awesome books um, there's some awesome websites for sorry puberty there's one called planet puberty which is like a really fun interactive one there's some really awesome family this one called family planning um essay and it sounds a bit like weird you know like family planning but it's actually just got all all things about kids and and adults and teens and going through those things and then there's another really cool website called raising children um and obviously there's like a child focus but it kind of it's talking about adolescents, teens, navigating relationships. It really does extend. Um, and if you are kind of learning about and touching on these things, that is kind of the entry point anyway. Yeah. Often. Yeah, yeah. Is there any resources for adults at all? Or like, I imagine there would be, but do you know of any? Yeah, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I can definitely send you some to put in links and notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a big kind of library that I've been collecting them all on. Um, and there's a fair few like good helplines. But as I said, like this is really a growing space and we're seeing a lot of autism specific supports and we see a lot of queer specific supports um, and we are starting to see them integrate, but it's it's not quite there yet. And, and it's... it's um, it's something that I think we'll probably see some really exciting things in the next couple of years as it becomes really apparent that's a really important area. Mm, absolutely. Even like I've noticed more, um, obviously more research and just more resources that are coming out that are going to be really beneficial and they're just going to grow and grow and grow, which is really mm. exciting and like hopefully will really create start creating some really positive change. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. And hopefully some really cool like social media and 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 like web pages and things that we can go to yeah, and people abs- sharing their own lived experience will be awesome. 100%. I was literally just going to say that people who are actually living with these disabilities mm. or living on the spectrum talking about them from their experience because I think it's so powerful and that's one thing that um a lot of research and things has lacked it's you know being done by people who don't have that experience mm-hmm. and I think it's going to just that's going to be one of the things that's going to really change a lot is 
you know, having people with this lived experience, talking about it, empowering others and allowing those who do live, you know, maybe on the spectrum or with a disability to be able to connect with somebody who is in a similar situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I would love to know, though, what is something that is orgasmic to you? (laughs) Um, I was having a little think about this and I was like, "Mm, do I go food because food is something I love? And then I was like, "Mm, do I go sex because that's also something I love? (laughs) Um, But I, on Monday, went to the Harry Styles Perth concert. Stop it. And I couldn't think of something more orgasmic right now in my head it has consumed me and several of my dreams um how beautiful being in his presence was I I turned into a very sexually frustrated 13 year old girl and (laughs) lost some dignity but it's fine I'm I'm okay with it um so that is that's my my uh what's orgasmic to me is, is oh. Harry Styles live in concert. Mm, oh my yummy. god, I'm so jealous. Literally one of my best friends is going tonight and she was so going exciting. to sell me a ticket like a few months ago, but I had no money. I was like, No, don't do it and then today I was like, Why? Why did I not just spend the money? Because I'm so jealous. I've been seeing everybody's stories and he's just like the sexiest, <laughs> most gorgeous, talented man ever. <laughs> It's like I've never felt that level of attraction towards any man. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous. I don't, it's a phenomenon. He's, he's going to be, um, he's going to be known for decades to come. That's for sure. Oh my God. Absolutely. Oh my God. I just, I wish, I wish. It's, I know. I'll get get there in the next concert, hopefully. (laughs) As always, Shaggers, please reach out with any comments, questions, or stories, either through my Instagram at That's Orgasmic or my email, emilyduncan at that'sorgasmic.com. Please subscribe on whatever platform you used to listen to this podcast and leave a review as I'd love to know what you're thinking. So thank you, Shaggers, and I'll see you next time. (gasps)